This is Bishop Phoebe Rowe of the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee, and welcome to Faithfully Memphis. Every Thursday morning, we broadcast live from WYXR 91.7 FM at Crosstown Concourse in Memphis, and we have the opportunity to speak with a guest about their work and ministry and the role of faith in their life. So each week, we begin the show with a saint of the day, and today, October the 26th, is actually the feast day of Alfred the Great, a very fascinating character in history. So we have to go back um, to the early days of Britain. When the gospel was first preached in Great Britain, the island was inhabited by Celtic peoples. And in the 400s, there were some pagan tribes, including the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, who invaded Britain. And they actually drove the Christians out of what is now England into Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. And that was in the 400s. Well, in the 800s, the cycle kind of repeated itself. Uh, the Christian Anglo-Saxons were invaded by Danes who were pagan raiders, and they seemed as if the Danes were going to conquer the entire country when they were turned by, back by Alfred, who was the king of the West Saxons. So Alfred was born in the year 849, he was actually the youngest of five sons of the king. So he was the son of a king before he became king himself. Alfred really wanted to be a monk. But unfortunately, his father and all four of his older brothers were killed, probably in conflict during war. So he was made king in 871. Seems that he learned a lot from his dad and his older brothers because he was very skilled at military tactics and he devised a defensive formation which the Danes were unable to break. And after a decisive victory in the year 878, he reached an agreement with the Danish leader where the Danes would retain a portion of northeastern England and in return, they would agree to accept baptism and Christian instruction and allow Christian priests and missionaries to evangelize among the members of their community. And that's what happened. And Christianity spread. So later in life, once the military threats were no longer as prominent, Alfred devoted his energies to repairing the damage that war had done to the cultural life of his people. One of the things that he did was to bring in scholars to translate um, religious writings into the language of the people. He was also really impressed by the protection of the rights of ordinary citizens in some of the Old Testament books and ordered that similar provisions be made a part of English law. And he also encouraged parish clergy 
to be educated so that the people who would be leading Christian communities had the skills and the training that they needed to be effective evangelists of Jesus Christ. And so Alfred died on October the 26th in the year 899. And on his feast day, we do give thanks for his life, his witness, and the fact that um, being a Christian was an integral part to everything that he did. So welcome back to Faithfully Memphis. And this week, we are going to have a wonderful conversation with someone um, who's actually going to be in Memphis next week. And everyone who's listening will have an opportunity to come and to hear him speak. Uh, And I am speaking of the Reverend Dr. Robert McSwain. Uh, He wears many different hats. Not only is he an Episcopal priest, but he's also been on the faculty at Sewanee's School of Theology since 2009. And his teaching and research uh, delve into the fields of philosophy, theology, ethics, literature, and spirituality. So, Dr. McSwain, welcome to Faithfully Memphis. Thank you, Bishop Phoebe. It's wonderful to be here with you via Zoom. Exactly. I look forward to being with you in person next week. Great. So I normally start the conversation on Faithfully Memphis with an invitation for our guest to share a little bit about the role of faith in their lives in their formative years. So tell us a little bit about the role of faith when you were growing up as a boy. Wow, thank you for that. Um, Well, like many people, I had a very mixed upbringing uh, Mm -hmm. in regard to religion. Um, My mother was from an Italian Roman Catholic background, but not practicing. My father was from an Episcopal background, but not practicing. And so while they were married in the church, uh, I was not raised with any particular um, formation uh, in my earliest years. Uh, my mother taught me the Lord's Prayer, and, and that was about that. But um, this was in the 1970s, and there were lots of movements in American religion at that time, the charismatic movement and the evangelical movement. And my mother and I got involved with both of those movements. And um, that was what I think was my earliest formation was mm-hmm. in that kind of uh, renewal Christianity of that era. Um, but like many people, I then found my way to something a little bit more um, stable uh, and traditional. And uh, I found my way to the Episcopal Church. And what I valued about that was that I felt it was a a faith tradition where I could hold a lot of things together um, mm-hmm. and and not and not necessarily have to choose an either or the way our culture so often does impose on us. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So you and I sort of share that background. My father's family was missionary Baptist mm -hmm. and my mother's family was Episcopalian. And when they got married in their mixed marriage, the agreement was the children would be baptized and confirmed Episcopalian. But we worshiped in both faith traditions mm -hmm. when I was a girl growing up. So um, I, I dare say your primary vocation has been that of educator. And I wonder um, what led you uh, to the realization that teaching and the forming of minds uh, was a vocation that would end up taking up so much of your life's work. That's a great question, and it's actually very closely connected uh, to your first one. Um, even though I ended up in the Episcopal Church, there were lots of stops and detours along the way, and um, it's kind of hard to explain. My own life doesn't necessarily make sense to me when I look back at it. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> so I, I found the Episcopal Church in high school, but then I went to a fundamentalist Baptist college uh, and then a Presbyterian seminary. Um, mm. And then I had the uh, wonderful chance to go study abroad in Scotland for a year. So I was I was experiencing these different forms, you know, not just of Christianity, but of theological education and mm -hmm. and the vocation of, of scholarship. And along the way, I discerned that I had two vocations. I discerned that I was called to ordination in the Episcopal Church and that that became my first vocation. And I went to Virginia Seminary for a year to kind of compensate for the fundamentalist Baptist <laughs> and, and Presbyterian education I received. Um, but I also discerned that I had a call to be a teacher, uh, to be a scholar, and that these two things had to come together for me. So, so after I was ordained and spent uh, a few years in parish ministry, and I, I am, I grew up partly in Virginia and partly in North Carolina, and so mm -hmm. my my diocese is East Carolina, mm -hmm. and I was a parish priest there. But I then went to the UK again and did my doctorate um, in, in theology. And I think it's trying to bring these things together, trying to bring um, the intellect and the spirit together is maybe the, the driving concern there that, you know, we one of the problems with American religion is it's so often anti-intellectual. It so mm -hmm. often says to be a Christian means you have to give up your your reason and your critical intelligence. And, and our tradition says no to that. Our tradition says no, you know, you, you can uh, be an intellectual and a Christian. And um, it's faith seeking understanding uh, is the goal. And so I think for me, trying to bring those things together uh, as a theologian mm -hmm. has been my driving concern while also being a priest. Yeah. So you will be with us um, next week. And so for our listening audience next Friday, which is November the 3rd, um, Rob will be with us kind of as a kickoff for um, an inaugural um, theological society sponsored by Barth House, which is our college ministry located on the campus of the University of Memphis at 409 Patterson Street. And so next Friday,
beginning at 6.30 p.m. with a, a reception followed by a lecture. Rob will be talking to us on the topic of saints as evidence of God. And this comes from um, work that is uh, connected to your soon-to-be-released new book. And um, this whole question of who is God and where is God and human holiness, right? That's a whole lot of sort of deep, <laughs> almost existential questioning. Mm. And so, um, but I would imagine that as a priest and teacher, one of the aspects of your call is to engage in these conversations in terms and in ways that everyday folk can kind of draw in. And so can you tell us a little bit about your book and when it's uh, expected to be released and um, maybe the premise uh, behind this research that you've been engaged in, I think for a few years now. Yes, absolutely. So, so I, I went, as I said, I went to the UK, to Great Britain for my PhD. Um, I wanted to work with a particular scholar over there um, on a particular Anglican theologian named Austin Farrer. As I mm -hmm. said, I was still trying to compensate for all the Baptists and Presbyterian <laughs> stuff in my education. And I thought, you know, I'd like to do my doctorate on, on an Anglican, on a, on a 20th century Anglican. And I decided to do it on this man named Austin Farrer, who was quite an extraordinary person. He also was raised Baptist, actually. His father mm -hmm. was a Baptist pastor and theologian and a very intelligent, devout Baptist family. But as an undergraduate at Oxford, Farrer found himself drawn to the Church of England, to the Anglican mm -hmm. tradition. And he was a biblical scholar and a philosopher and a theologian and a priest and um, wrote wonderful devotional books and among many, many sorts of writings. And in some of his sermons, you know, he said, what's the best evidence for God? Mm -hmm. And as a philosopher, he knew all the traditional arguments for God's existence, and then he wrote he wrote books about them, um, and he took them seriously. And you know, we often look at at things like the whole universe as evidence mm. for God. You know, how who made all this? Where did this stuff come from? And so philosophers tend to be drawn to these really big, gigantic uh, masses of evidence. You know, and the laws of nature and things like that. And Ferris, like, absolutely, God made all that, but let me tell you about this man I knew. And what Farrer basically would say is that the best evidence for God are living saints among us, people mm. whose life somehow manifests a higher, more transcendent way of being. Mm -hmm. um, they're either the, their, their, their life, their, their morality, their, their, um, their joy, uh, the, the serenity, something about them draws our attention. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, this is a fascinating premise. And, and I began to realize that other people had said this as well. I, I just kept bumping into this idea. And so I thought someone needs to write a book about this. This, mm -hmm. this needs to be a, a, a big project. And so, yes, I've been working on it for about seven years and um, I hope it will be published next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but the basic idea is to, is to say, okay, what do we think of this idea? 
Um, and the different arguments for God's existence all have names. There's the cosmological argument from the universe or the cosmos. There's the teleological argument from order, what we use the word telos for order. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the Greek word for holiness is, is hegios. And, and we use the term hegeological on a regular basis to talk about saints in that literature. And I said, well, this is the hagiological argument. This is the argument from holiness. So what's been fun about it is that while it started as this very kind of philosophical thing, it took me into the literature about saints in all these different fields of study. Mm -hmm. um, saints are another religion. This is not just about Christianity. You know, this is not about only Christians are holy. No, there are Jewish saints and Muslim saints and Hindu saints and Buddhist saints. And, and there's this whole field called comparative hagiography, which we didn't used to use the word saint to refer to people in other religions. That was just a Christian term. But, but now scholars of religious studies have realized that there's some commonality and that we can use this term saint in, in reference to other figures. So it's it's just been a fascinating project that I've, I've really learned so much from and benefited from, but mm -hmm. it's time to finish it and move on. <laughs> so I hope that at least answers yes. some of the questions. You know, when I started, uh, when you and I started this conversation months ago about the prospect of you coming to Memphis, not only for this public presentation next Friday evening, but also to speak with the clergy of West Tennessee on Saturday, I started thinking about the saints in my own life, and they kind of fall into two categories. And one of those categories would be someone who just seems so like larger than life and so perfect that I could never attain. So I might think of, say, Mother Teresa, right, or Pope Francis, a person for whom I just have so much respect. And then the other category um, really would be people who have a, a very sort of small footprint when compared to, say, a Mother Teresa or a Pope Francis. Um, my two grandmothers, mm -hmm. right, African-American women who were raised in the segregated South, who lived through the Great Depression, who lived through World Wars, who lived through the horrors of the Jim Crow South, and yet whose faithfulness and commitment to their families and their church and their neighbors had such a profound impact on me. They probably would never in a million years have defined themselves as a saint, mm -hmm. but they certainly have got to be in that heavenly constellation of angels and archangels as we refer to in our eucharistic prayer and so i wonder are there sort of like different categories of saints for people some of which may seem to be approachable and others that just sort of seem larger than life absolutely um and and yes so there are different kinds of saints no question and um, so I, I've mentioned several times my Baptist past. As it happens, um, I have a three-point alliterative outline uh, for this, which is obviously a staple of Baptist preaching. Um, I don't have a sermon. I don't have a poem to go with it. But um, <laughs> um, 
and again, I didn't make this up. It's just, it's just as I read through the different literature, it seemed to me that people were talking about three kinds of saints. Mm -hmm. And one kind of saint uh, is the one you began with, the person of just extraordinary altruism, mm -hmm. someone who is kind of a world-leading figure, mm -hmm. someone like a Mother Teresa. And um, the argument there to get to my outline is, as I call that propositional, and I won't go into those details mm -hmm. now, but it's a, it's a technical argument. Um, uh, it's called an inference, the best explanation is, is the technical term. And you say that this person is so extraordinarily altruistic that their life might not make sense if God mm -hmm. didn't exist. Mm -hmm. There are very few people like that. There are very right. few people whose lives are so extraordinary. Um, the second uh, is is a sort of person who who just kind of radiates peace and joy and holiness. And when you're around them, um, you might feel that you're being drawn into God's presence. And that's what we call religious experience. And so that I classify under what I call the perceptual. You just seem to perceive God when you're in the presence of these saints. But I think the one that you're talking about is the third category, and that's what I call the performative. And that's that these people just, they're not super extraordinary altruists, and they might not always have this aura of, you know, luminous light around them, but they just faithfully live out every, every moment of their life is bearing witness to the reality of God. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's extended through time. It's, it's what we call... Um, Again, using the technical term diachronic. Synchronic mm -hmm. means a moment of time. And so when you're when when you're in the presence of one of these um radiantly holy people, it just might be a glancing encounter, but but you feel it. That's mm -hmm. synchronic. But you knew your grandmothers for for years, mm. for decades, and you saw them over time faithfully living out their life. And and again, that's what I call the performative. And I think that, you know, there are different numbers associated with each of those types. As I said, there are relatively few people in that extraordinary altruist class. Maybe there are more people who, who have the luminous glow, but I think most of the saints in our lives fit into this third category. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the sort of sainthood that we should be aspiring to as well. Yeah. So, you know, we find ourselves in such an interesting uh, period in human history. Um, if we're not post-Christian, we're probably getting close to that, certainly in the West. Mm -hmm. And we have just recently gotten through the worst uh, global pandemic in a hundred years. Mm -hmm. um, if you turn on the news, it just seems like the whole world is on fire between Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Gaza, uh, the tremendous humanitarian crisis in Sudan and South Sudan, in Haiti. I mean, unfortunately, like you can just go on and on and on. And so I wonder, Rob, in the face of so much perhaps evidence that God may not be paying much attention, maybe God has turned God's figurative back. Mm. Um, what is your hope about what a person sitting in a pew sort of reflecting on a saint, uh, either personal or 
you know, someone from history, how might that bear hmm. on the issues that we're facing every day? You know, what what's the purpose of this exercise hmm. in reflecting on the holiness that exists within humanity? Hmm. Wow, thank you. Uh, what a what a challenging but important hmm. question. Um, my mind's drawn in a couple of different directions. One is one of the things I discuss in this book is that there are there are non-religious saints, as, as mm. I understand them. There are people who are themselves without any religious faith, but who are drawn to devote themselves to the well-being of others. And they often live extraordinarily self-sacrificial and morally impressive lives. And I think we can learn something from them. Uh, mm -hmm. We can learn, you know, what it means to be a good person uh, in the face of overwhelming challenges. Um, and and we can be challenged by them. So I, I just want to say that, you know, we don't, we don't, so to your point about our perhaps post-Christian and post-religious mm -hmm. era, um, looking at people who I think fit the category of sainthood, who are themselves secular, is I think a really mm -hmm. interesting thing mm -hmm. to explore further. Um, and, you know, as you were talking about all the challenges in this world right now, you know, there's also the environmental challenge. Yes. And, you know, as you say, the world's on fire and and, and not just metaphorically, but literally. Literally. Um, and, you know, I've been reading that, that um, you know, both the Mississippi Ripper, River and the Amazon River are are drying up record loves our, our misuse of of the world so something that you know this project acknowledges is that it, it can be dangerous to focus exclusively on human beings as the best evidence for god hmm. um and elizabeth johnson is a roman catholic uh feminist theologian and 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 nun who's written a very interesting book in which she says, you know, we should think about the whole world as, as holy, uh, not just human beings in it. And, and she she's drawn to that phrase um, in the Apostles' Creed about the communion of saints, which can also be interpreted as the communion with holy things. Mm -hmm. So not just human beings, but, but the Eucharist and the world from which the Eucharistic elements are drawn. And I talk about that in the book and I say, you know, just because I'm focusing on humans doesn't mean hmm. that that's the only important thing. We need to look at the whole bigger picture, including nature. But the, the third thing that occurs to me is, you know, one of the challenging ideas uh, that I've encountered in writing this book is that when we're looking at evidence for God, um, maybe we should try to be that evidence. Uh, if we don't think there's enough evidence for God, then maybe we should try to make sure there's more. So as I've sometimes said, you know, ask not what the evidence for God can do for you, ask what you can do for the <laughs> evidence of God. So, you know, if, if we're looking at a world in which people don't see evidence of God, then maybe it's incumbent on us to give them that evidence. Hmm. By the so way... The Yes, yeah, so there's sort of a, a responsibility on our part. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. It doesn't get us off the hook. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Mm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about this whole notion of um, all of creation and not just human beings. 
uh, being evidence of God. And I certainly know folks who would argue strongly that they see God reflected in their household pets (laughs) more so than they do in folks that they encounter at work or at school, you know? (laughs) Yes. That's a, a, you know, a cat or a dog can certainly show an unconditional love sometimes in ways that we don't get from our fellow humans. Mm. Mm. So we're hoping that we're going to have a broad spectrum of folk show up next Friday evening at Barth House on the campus of the University of Memphis. And um, for folks in the Memphis area who are familiar with Dr. Peter Gatke, who um, has been a long-term professor and administrator at Memphis Theological Seminary, MTS, he's actually going to be the facilitator of the conversation with Rob next week. And so, um, Rob, you know, um, what might people expect if they show up uh, next Friday evening at Barth House? Well, I think that the idea is basically for me to talk a little bit more about the book in, in some detail, um, you know, that that again, it, it looks at this idea of human beings as somehow manifesting evidence for God, not exclusively, as I said, mm-hmm. certainly not the only evidence, but a neglected source of evidence and, mm-hmm. and the various ways in which that claim has been uh, explored by various people. And as I've said, there are these three modes, the the uh, propositional, the perceptual, and the performative, um, and just trying to explore that in more detail. But also, again, raising the possibility that that this is a what some people call a self-involving form of, of argument, that we just can't point, say, to the law of gravity or, you know, um, a flower the way people often do in regard to these arguments for God, but to say, what ways are our lives bearing witness to the reality of God? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think that um, we're all called to be saints in some sense. Um, there's a famous quote from Thomas Merton. He says, "To be a saint is to be myself." Mm-hmm. Uh, but he points out that that's not as easy as it sounds, mm-hmm. right? Many of us do not live up to what and who we are supposed to be. So I think that you know um, this has been a challenging project for me. Just just one example. Uh, when I was writing the book and I was writing the, the chapter on altruism and altruism is, is doing things for other people. Altruism mm-hmm. is care for others. And while I was working on it, a friend called and asked me to do a favor for them, which was, you know, kind of an inconvenient thing. And, and I was, I was inclined to say no. And then I thought, Oh, wait a second. I'm writing <laughs> about altruism. And, you know, if I say no to this yeah. person asking me for a favor, you know, is that really um, uh, compatible with, with the book that I'm writing? So my own my own research, you know, had me go out and do this thing for this person. Yeah. So, I mean, I really do think that, you know, when 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 your when your research starts to shape who you are then then you know you've hit something good and and i do think that you know lots of people when i've shared this these thoughts they've said oh like i know somebody right like mm-hmm. like most people have a saint in their life um that that this resonates with and so yeah i just hope it'll be an interesting sharing of these various ideas mm-hmm. and and arguments and a conversation with people as well 
Yeah. And I love the fact that it isn't just about something intellectual, but that it's also um, an opportunity for each one of us to reflect on, I guess the way I would put it um, is how can I tomorrow wake up and be a better version of Phoebe than I am today, right? Mm -hmm. So how can I continue again as a Christian to be formed more and more, to be transformed more and more in Christ's likeness, to kind of live out my faith and opportunities to reflect on that with other folks who are grappling with a similar issue, I find that we don't get many of those opportunities in the midst of our busy lives. I'm afraid you're right. And we, therefore, it's a wonderful opportunity to have that kind of conversation and to, to spend some time thinking about these things. Yeah. So as someone who is involved in to helping shape the next generation of lay leaders and clergy for the church, you know, this is slightly off topic, but again, when you're looking at the media, there's a whole lot of a gloom and doom about the demise of organized religion in all forms, right? Not just Christianity, but the, the growing number of the nuns, the inner Sort of, you know, we're kind of pulling away from all of this. Um, I wonder what are some of the main issues or questions that uh, you and your uh, seminarians are grappling today as you're thinking about preparing people to go out and lead the church of the 21st century? Mm-hmm. Well, you're you're really asking easy questions. <laughs> oh, be- come on, softballs. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. That's wonderful. Well, I mean, so I'm a professor at a seminary, and yeah. I think that the challenge is, um, on one hand, we have to know our tradition, right? We have we have to know our stuff. We have to know the Bible. We have to know our liturgy. We have to know pastoral care and um, congregational life and you know, uh, I was at the conversation with you and John Meacham uh, uh, and and Rob Perigen at Swanee last week, and mm-hmm. you're like, family systems theory is important, right? I yep. mean, like, we, there are things that we have to know, and for me, that includes, you know, theology, the, the doctrines of the church, but we're also in a time of such incredible um, technological change, mm-hmm. incredible technological uh, innovation. And, um, you know, one of the things you said, I'm basically quoting you, that you know, we, need, we need to be more engaged with people in their lives out, yeah. you know, not expecting them to come into our churches, mm-hmm. but podcasts like this and, and websites and, um, um, you know, social media, um, Facebook and X or whatever Twitter mm-hmm. is now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are all ways in which, you know, the, the, they used to call it the Agora, the marketplace where people would gather. Um, and, and we have to go where the people are. Yeah. Um, and not, again, not expect them to come to us. So I think that's, that's, that's one thing. But I guess I'd also say, I think that, yes, I mean, it is a challenging time for organized religion, uh, for churches like the Episcopal Church or other mm-hmm. mainline churches. But we also have vastly more resources um, than our ancestors did. You're right. 
Yeah. And I think we shouldn't panic just yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I think we need to, you know, use what we have uh, as best we can, and mm -hmm. not not feel that somehow the ship's going down. I agree. You know, um, right outside of my personal office at the diocese, there is a framed photograph of uh, Bishop Demby, one of the first two black bishops in the Episcopal Church in the United States, uh, Bishop Demby and Bishop Delaney. And Bishop Demby um, served as the rector of St. Paul's in Mason, uh, an African-American congregation in my diocese, before becoming the bishop uh, the, for colored the suffering bishop for colored ministries in the Southwest Territory. So he was focused in Arkansas and Oklahoma and parts of Texas. So west of West Tennessee. And to think about the conditions under which he labored, Rob, without any salary, with no voice or vote at diocesan convention, um, with uh, people who literally would not receive communion next to him at the altar. And then I look at my position now, right? And I have the full authority of the diocese and the all the support, financial, political, social, that goes along with it. Um, you're absolutely right. You know, our forefathers and foremothers labored under uh, much more challenging uh, circumstances than we do today. So if he could accomplish what he did with all of those obstacles, I really shouldn't be complaining about anything, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, I do think that we need to remember that, you know, it's still a mission field. And yeah. you know, Episcopal Church is incorporated as the, the domestic and foreign, foreign missionary society. society. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we we kind of think that we don't, that that's all been done and and all we have to do is kind of live off our endowments and in our nice mm -hmm. buildings and and but you know we've we've got to actually um labor come labor on great hymn of the church right um and so i think that um it is hard work uh it's hard work being a priest it's hard work being a, a pastor it's hard work being a christian layperson you mm -hmm. know faithfully bearing witness to um, the love of Christ in their life, in their workplace. Uh, it's a challenge being a seminary professor. None of this is easy. Yeah, It's not supposed to be. And I just think we need to, to not, as I said, don't panic just because things are not as good as they were 15 or 20 years ago. They're still vastly better than they were a hundred years ago. And yeah. as you said, how did, how did we get to where we are if it wasn't yeah. for people making incredible and um, accomplishments in, yeah. in the name of the kingdom. Yeah, because the good old days weren't so good for everybody. <laughs> they certainly were not. Well, Rob, as we prepare to kind of conclude our conversation, I wonder what is giving you a sense of hope at this point about mm -hmm. the future, um, not only of, of the church, but of Sewanee, of theological education. You know, I, I get the sense that um, I sense there's insight, excitement and enthusiasm about this important work that you're engaged in. So what, what's got you lifted up right now? 
Well, I'll tell you. Um, so when I when I'm, I'm currently on sabbatical, I'm, I'm yes. currently um, a visiting scholar at Vanderbilt Divinity School this uh, semester. So I'm talking to you from Nashville rather than Swanee. But but when I'm teaching at Swanee, uh, one of the assignments I ask my students to do is is to to write a autobiographical essay specifically about their uh, their history of engagement with scripture. Um, and I say to them, this is not your regular autobiographical essay that you trot out all the time for ordination committees. I, this is something else. But but along the way, I hear their story uh, of their coming to faith and their their um, their call. And, and that is what gives me hope. I mean, I you know, when I read my student stories and and it is just so clear to me that that there's a God, mm -hmm. that there's a Holy Spirit, that that they have been called, you know, to a form of ministry in the church that that's brought them to seminary. Um, I mean, much more than anything in my own life, it's it's listening to my students' stories is what gives me hope. Great. Well, thank you so much for your dedicated service to helping to form. Uh, clergy and lay folks to come out and lead the church. And we definitely want to encourage our listeners in the Shelby County area to come out to Barth House, the college ministry on the campus of the University of Memphis that's run by the Diocese of West Tennessee next Friday, November the 3rd at 6.30 p.m. And we're located at 409 Patterson. And this will give you an opportunity to hear Rob in person and then to sort of engage in conversation with other folks of goodwill who want to explore this question of how we are identifying God in the midst of our of our daily lives. So, Rob, thank you so much. And we're looking forward to being with you in person next week. Thank you, Bishop Phoebe. It's wonderful to have this conversation with you, and I, I do look forward to being with you in Memphis. Oh, my God. Oh, my Lord. I don't even know. Can't even see the road that rests right in front of me, my Lord. Oh, my Lord, sometimes I wonder if I know who I am. Just because I think I'm following you doesn't mean I am my God. But could I believe the desire to This will all end, no vacuum.
cannot know for certain They say the toil and the tree is a chasing Thank you, listening audience, for another week of Faithfully Memphis. Uh, We encourage you to listen to us wherever you hear other podcasts, including Apple Music and Spotify. And just a heads up about next Thursday's show, we will be interviewing the executive director of Hannah's Hope, which is a social service agency focusing on adoption that covers the same 21 counties that we have in our Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee. And actually, on Saturday, October the 28th at 10 a.m., there'll be uh, a special event hosted at Grace St. Luke's Church in Memphis, where representatives of Hannah's Hope We'll describe more about their mission and ministry. And so if you have any interest in learning more about uh, this important organization, tune in to next Thursday's show where lots of information will be presented. So until next week, friends, stay safe and stay positive.